And welcome here. For those of you who are visiting, my name is Pastor Jeremy Lobdell. If you happen to see me kiss the pianist on her way down, um, she's cute. What can I say? <laughs> and she also happens to be my wife. Thank you, Robin and team. And that was great. <clears throat> Uh, you never know what will come out. Maybe, maybe we should pray first. <laughs> Father in heaven, we thank you for today. And we do praise the name of Jesus, the only king forever. And uh, we lift him higher. And you know in our own feeble attempts that uh, our hearts are sinful and fallen and broken. And our desires betray us. And we chase after other things that are not nearly as good as him. And Lord, realistically, uh, sin is boring we think it's exciting, but there's nothing more exciting than him. And we pray this morning as we uh, look at Mark chapter 16, that you would bring your word to us in new and powerful ways for those who don't know Jesus, that they would get to know him. For those who do, that their hearts would be renewed and restored. For your servants, your family, and your church, Lord, we pray that you would bless us, not because we are good, but because you are. Lord, you are good. And all God's people said, amen. So if you're just joining us online, welcome here. Happy Easter. We have a little tradition at our church and actually at the church, at all churches around the world. So I want to practice it once. Don't say anything quite yet. Some of you already know the answer. Just itching to go. But let me give the answer to those of you who do not. What we do in our tradition is uh, the uh, speaker will call out for the people to worship and he will say, he is risen, and then the people in response will affirm that proclamation and say, he is risen indeed. So let me give us a chance to start with that this morning. It may come back again. We'll see. But let's start with the traditional Christian proclamation that's gone on every Sunday since 33 AD. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Welcome here. We're looking at Mark chapter 16 in our church. What we've been doing is walking through this gospel over a number of years, uh, 54, 55 sermons, something like that. And now we're at the very end. And it's interesting because each gospel writer is a little different. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all show their personalities throughout their description of Jesus's life. And one of the things that we learned about Mark is, man, he is the action dude. He doesn't miss words, mince words. He doesn't wait around. He's just like, boom, to the point, boom, to the point. It's the shortest gospel. Some think it's the first gospel. He leaves out a lot of detail that some of the other people do. And he just states the facts because he wants you to look at it and examine it and see what in the world happened. And such is the case with the ending of his book here in Mark chapter 16. But before we get there, just to recap a little bit, want to remind you, not too long ago, we left off with Jesus praying in the garden. And when Jesus was praying in the garden, what he said was this. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And by that, he meant his suffering, his persecution, his crucifixion. This thing that's coming that I don't want to do, take it away. How many of you have ever prayed that before? I have. I don't put two hands up, maybe. Lord, remove this cup from me. Of course, it wasn't a crucifixion, but it felt like it at the time. Dying to self, something I don't want to go through, and it's coming up. Lord, is there any way that perhaps Jesus would return before this moment? <laughs> Please, God, come back. 
That started for me in high school. On one of my first exams, I'm like, Lord, please, come back. Now would be a good time. But Jesus is praying in a much more sincere and serious way that God will remove the suffering ahead of him. And yet he submits himself. One of the greatest Christian virtues in all of Christianity is this incredible strength and power we call submission. Jesus shows himself to be more submissive than anyone else in the history of the world always ready to do his father's will he submits and says yes this is what i want but not what i want what you want and so he submits to the will of the father and as it turns out in the strange eternal magnificent mysterious will of god it is god's will to crucify jesus god willed to put him to death god willed to crush him God chose before the foundation of the world to give his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And and interestingly enough, we read in John chapter 3, verse 14, everyone thinks of 16, which I just kind of quoted, but we read in 14, just a couple verses before that famous one, this, it says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus knew that it was absolutely necessary, that it was 100% essential. There was no way around it. He had to be crucified. There was no other way but this. He must be lifted up. And so it was, in fact, the will of the Lord to crush him. And now the question is, what will God do? God decided, God chose, God willed to crush and kill his only begotten son. What then will God do next? Mark chapter 16. Mark 16, beginning in verse 1, it says this. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled for the tomb, trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are a couple commands in this section. One of the things as a uh, speaker that I like to do is point out the commands and make sure we command what Christ commands and don't command what Christ didn't command. A couple commands I want to point out this morning will be the structure of this a sermon or talk or text, and they are these. The first one is do not be alarmed, verse 6. So if you're taking notes, that's your first point. Do not be alarmed. 
And the second one, coming from verse 7, is go and tell. Now, those are two commands, but I'm putting them together. Go and tell. Don't be alarmed and go and tell. Don't be alarmed, go and tell. That's the structure of today's sermon. We'll look first at do not be alarmed. In verse 8, you see that they were trembling. There's a couple of different words that are used here. But one of the most interesting ones to me is the same one that is used to describe Moses in Acts chapter 7 and Hebrews chapter 12. When he enters into the very presence of God. When he's standing on the mountain, there's flashes of lightning and thunder and the earth is shaking. And he is falling down and trembling on the ground for fear for his very life. He trembled. He shook violently because he was so afraid of the majestic, holy presence of God. And guess what happened to these women when they went to the tomb? The exact same thing. They come into where God had been and they see that he was no longer there. And they tremble, they shake for fear and astonishment. And so the very first thing that the angel, the young man, another gospel writer tells us it was an angel... Um, says is to do not be alarmed. Now that's easy for you to say, Mr. Angel, you came down and you saw what happened, but we are human beings and what we saw was Jesus crucified. And what we know is that the disciples have fled and what we have experienced is shame and suffering and persecution and now the absence of our Lord. How can you say don't be afraid? This is a pretty good time for fear if ever there was one. Have you come to that spot in your life? And you feel like your friends at church or maybe the Holy Spirit or scripture or prayer is saying to you, don't be afraid. And you're like, yeah, but wait a minute. (laughs) This is a pretty good time for fear because I don't know the future. I don't know what's going to happen. And there's a lot of things that are stacked up against me. Logically speaking, if ever there was a time for fear, this is a pretty good one. Maybe you don't understand the situation here, Mr. Young Man, sitting there casually on the stone. This is a big deal. We could get killed too. We might be next. We gave our lives to this thing and now it's gone. How is this going to work? Nothing makes sense. Have you felt that way? Oh boy. Don't be afraid. What are you talking about? We're people. Of course we're afraid. We feel. We feel things strongly. But the angel tells them, because he knows that they need it, do not be alarmed. Well, why not, Mr. Angel? Why in the world should I not be alarmed? Well, one reason, you know, the angel may have just poked them a little bit is because Jesus told you this was going to happen you know he includes in there as he told you you know like oh by the way remember there are three instances in mark there are five or six in matthew there are three in luke several different times jesus told you this is what's going to happen guys and it still didn't click even think of jesus's enemies who remembered jesus's statements that he would raise from the dead. They're the ones coming up with a conspiracy theory to say that he swooned or the disciples stole the body or whatever else. His enemies remembered, but his disciples didn't. And they're afraid. They've come into the presence of God and they're trembling with fear. And he says, don't be afraid. Well, why not? Well, one is, remember, 
he told you. But two, here's the important thing. And here's the important thing for me and for my family and for you and your family and wherever you're at in life. If you have believed in Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, then the very thing that this angel said to these people is true for you as well. And that is this. Do not be afraid. Don't be alarmed. Don't worry. Why? Verse 7. Because he is going before you. Why should you not be afraid? Because Jesus goes before you. Wherever you headed, wherever you're going, he's already been. He's ahead of you. He's before you. He's behind you. He's all around you. He's everywhere all the time. And it's not just some mystic ideal, but this is the reality. He spelled it out for him and said, you know, I'm going to be crucified. And you guys probably will be too. And then I'm going to raise from the dead. And just like Jesus raised from the dead, so too will you be raised from the dead. And he's going to prove it by going ahead of you into Galilee, where you're going to meet him next. This is a prearranged appointment. This is on like Google Calendar or eye calendar or whatever else it's like he's already set that appointment and sent a reminder multiple times and still they missed it and yet he says look i'm going on ahead of you don't you understand church don't you understand jeremy wherever the lord calls you he goes first he goes ahead of you whether it's to college or career or retirement or different phase of ministry or whatever it is the lord is calling you to in life New relationship, old relationships, transitioning. Whatever phase you're going into, Jesus goes before you. He's ahead of you. He's a go before. This brings up the idea of the Exodus. It reminds the disciples of how Joshua, which that name eventually becomes Yeshua, which becomes Jesus in the New Testament, how Joshua was the captain of the people, how he led them into the promised land. And when you look up this word, you find in Strong's that the very definition itself lends itself to that. It means the go before, the one who leads. It means this. He leads by laying a hold of. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I love that picture. Like Jesus grabbing you by the scruff of the neck. That's what I need sometimes. Like little kitties or animals picking up their litter and saying, get over here. This is how we're going to do it. Ow. Mom's taking you this way. No choice. He leads by laying a hold of. He brings them to a point of their destination. He leads by accompanying or attaching himself to oneself if you don't like the kitten illustration try this one i understand that my understanding is that in the army rangers or one of their intense training sections that they're so sleep deprived that literally on a march they can fall asleep standing up and so one of the things they do is not to wake up in the middle of the woods all alone by yourself is you literally tie yourself onto the person in front of you so that the group, if they start moving, boom, you, you start moving too. And you don't get left behind. This is the idea here that Jesus attaches himself to us. You think you're all alone because he left you. But the reality is he's going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And you will never be alone again. He will be inside of you. He will be attached to you. You will become one with him in a mystic, transcendental, spiritual sort of way. That can never be broken apart. Even death itself can't separate you from him. 
This is the great gift that Jesus gives to his disciples and gives to us. And what you see is that over and over again, he's proven this. This really shouldn't be a surprise. But remember, we talked about Mark chapter 11 when he's about to enter the city on the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday and be celebrated as the king. He says, go into the village in front of you. Immediately you will find a colt tied up, which no one has ever sat and tie it and bring it to me. And they're like, yeah, but we just go grab someone's colt. Aren't they going to say, hey, what are you doing? Like now there's carjacking back then. I guess there was colt jacking. (laughs) I don't know. Why are you stealing my colt, man? No, no, no. Jesus has already gone ahead of them. He's gone before you. He's your go before. He's already made arrangements. This person knows what's coming. And so when you get there, all you have to do is say the master needs it and you get it. Wow. Jesus went ahead of them. That was pretty cool. What about Mark chapter 14 when... They're getting ready for the Passover and they're kind of hiding out because they don't want to be caught in this big, intense political scene and they need to buy some stuff and get a room and prepare. What do we do? Jesus says, go in the city. And of all things, this is not sexist. This is just their culture at that time. You'll see a man carrying a jar of water. The disciples are like, what? A man? Men never carry water. Look at the pictures in Uganda or wherever else. It's the women who carry the water on their head. Jesus is like, I know here's your sign. (laughs) That's the guy. We've already had this conversation. He went ahead of them with the colt, with the guy, and now into Galilee, just as he told you over and over again, guys. Here's your sign. Jesus, your pioneer, your leader, your captain, your go-before is leading the way to lay a hold of you, bring you to your destination, and he has already attached himself to you. And so the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. In Deuteronomy, it is the Lord who goes before you and fights for you. He will be with you, and he will not leave you or forsake you. That sounds kind of like the Great Commission, doesn't it? Even to the ends of the earth. The Lord, your God himself, he goes before you. Don't be afraid. Why? Because you're tough. Because you got it figured out. Because you can steal yourself and somehow overcome the chemicals and biology of your own body. No. That's all there. But don't be afraid. Why? Because Jesus goes with you. There is the only reason not to fear. And When Jesus is with you, you know what that means. Jesus always wins. Number one, do not be alarmed. He's going ahead of you. He's got this. Go. Number two, go and tell. Number two, go and tell. Now, if you're a Christian out there, if you're not, you'll become one here in just a minute, so don't worry. But I'm teasing. It's a good idea if you do. I'll explain that here in a second. But here's the thing. Christians think a lot of times we kind of tend to emphasize the go and tell and and it's good and the way we go with it is this we think okay you need to do evangelism because that's a big deal right like it's important for other people to know Jesus because this will change their life this will save their life we have the world changing life saving good news of Jesus Christ we ought to tell someone about it amen amen that's good but that's not the only reason. It's not. 
You see, what happens in the resurrection is originally you had this condemned criminal, this person who's falsely accused. They were crucified. And if he stayed in the grave and he stayed there, then the record would say Jesus was a charlatan. He was fake. He was false. He's not real. He's dead. And no one cares. And why should you? But because God the Father raised him from the dead, then it means that Jesus is alive and well. And if that's the case, then the whole goal of God, as Colossians 1 state, the overruling, overruling purpose of God is to lift him up. The crucifixion was not for special effect. It was for literal lifting up of Jesus Christ. And when he goes into the grave, he goes down. But if he stays there, he stays down and God's purpose is not accomplished. But if when he goes down and humbles himself, then the very things that he taught come true. And he who is humbled is actually lifted up. And Jesus is lifted up higher than any other. He's lifted up on the cross. He's lifted up from the grave and he's lifted up to sit. At the Father's right hand. The overruling purpose of God is to exalt the Son. And when you go and tell people that He is risen, you are participating in the ultimate purpose of God. You are vindicating Jesus. In that moment, you are vindicating Jesus. You are taking part of this process whereby God the Father said, That's my Son. And I will not let him stay there and I will not let him see decay and he will rule and he will reign and every knee will bow. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of this body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn among the dead, the very first to rise from the grave. That's Jesus. Why? That in Everything he might be preeminent. That in everything, in every area of your life, in every corner, in every nook, in every thought, in every desire, in every prayer, that Jesus is your highest and greatest treasure. It would not make sense to lift up something that it's of no value, but it's completely logical to adore and worship. The very most valuable thing there is. If there was something more valuable. You should lift that up. But because Jesus is the all surpassing treasure of the universe. There is none higher. Nothing better than lift him up. He is the one we must adore. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And it was his job to reconcile all things whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. This was the point. The point of the cross was to glorify Christ, to bring honor and glory to God the Father, to humble and exalt the Son, 
and demonstrate him to be the true ruler of the entire universe. If he's still in the grave, it's all a waste and a worthless, miserable life. But if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is truly risen from the dead, what else matters? Number one, don't be alarmed. Number two, go and tell. Not just because you want to close the deal or sell someone on Christ, but because you get to participate in the vindication and exaltation of the almighty son of God. You get to be a part of that plan and purpose to tell others how great Jesus really is. He is the Lord of the cosmos. And his resurrection guarantees the submission of all things to him. That in everything he might be preeminent. So as you can see, if you're here for the first time, Jesus is kind of a big deal. Like he's everything to us and those who know him. But if you don't know him, we want to give you a chance to do that this morning. And I hope that you'll be introduced to him. You can watch this really cool series um, called The Chosen on your phone or on other, other devices. Or you can read the Bible even better and learn about him firsthand. But let me give you just a little tidbit this morning for the next three to five minutes before we close and say this. We as Christians believe that God, the almighty ruler of the universe, actually became a human being. And it wasn't like he took a body and sort of dwelt in it, but he actually added humanity to himself. So that at the same time, as complex as it may seem, he was 100% God and 100% man. Not 60, 40, 80, 20, 70, 30, or anything else. But Jesus was, in fact, 100% God and 100% man. That God-man lived a perfect life and demonstrated his power and authority through various signs and wonders that only he could do. And then at the very end, instead of being accepted and loved by the people, he was rejected and shamed and mocked and spit upon and crucified. And where most would have thought that that was the end, the resurrection proved differently. And what that tells us is this, is Jesus did something that no one else could do. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross and paid our price. Whoa, 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 what do you mean he paid my price? Here's what the Bible says. It says the wages of sin is death. So the fact that every single one of us ever, except for Jesus, has messed up, made a mistake, or done wrong, that means we've sinned. And what we've earned is death. And you've seen that death is a guarantee. Even if you don't believe in God, you can't argue with the fact that everybody dies. Nobody can argue with that. That's a guarantee. Everybody dies, but only those who believe in Jesus will live because he is the only one capable of bringing the dead back to life. And what you see in the resurrection is a proof of that. When Jesus comes out of the grave, he demonstrates that those who follow after him will receive the same thing that he received from the Father, eternal life. And so by believing in him, by Saying to God, I believe that Jesus was the only begotten son of the living God who died on the cross to pay my price for my sins. You too can have eternal life. There's an exchange that takes place there. Christ sheds his blood 
on your behalf to cover the penalty for your sin, that death penalty. And as a result, what happens is your sin goes on him, but his righteousness comes on you. And you are covered. God has made atonement for you. He has covered you. And as a result, when God looks at you, he doesn't see you and your sin or me and my sin, but he sees Jesus and his blood. And under that covering and under that umbrella, we can be freed of shame and guilt and live forever in perfect harmony with him. Now, it doesn't mean that you won't die. Most of us probably will. But at the right time, Christ will return and those who gone asleep will be resurrected just like he was and then he will make a new heaven and a new earth and rule perfectly in on this planet in a place that is free from sin free from death free from pain and free from evil and that's what we christians call heaven the place that we get to be with him forever and ever that's the good news that's what we call the gospel the good news that Jesus entered a hostile territory, our planet, that he confronted the enemy, the devil, sin and death, that he defeated him and rose victorious and took the bounty, which is eternal life, and freely distributed it to everyone who believes in him. See, what I want to ask you this morning, I don't know if you came here on your own or if you're invited by someone or you just haven't been at church in a while and you're like, man, you know, it's Easter. We ought to try or breakfast sounds pretty good. What do you know? We like free. Hey, why not? And you showed up today. It's not an accident. None of it is. Just like the very beginning, the foundation of time, Jesus was no accident. Neither are you. You are here today for a purpose and a reason and he wants you to hear this. Believe in the only begotten son of the living God. For the forgiveness of your sins. And you will have eternal life. I'm not selling you anything. I'm not asking for something. I'm giving you something. You can go to another Bible believing church. You don't have to come to ours. We think it's pretty good. But. There's a lot of ways. For you to grow in Christ. The key is that you have him. If you have him. You have everything. If you don't. You got nothing. Believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you have, what a joy to no longer worry and have the privilege to go and tell. Don't worry. Believe in Jesus. Go and tell. And he'll go before you. And everything will be well. Father, we thank you and praise you for the good news your only begotten son. Thank you that he conquered sin and death and lives and gives eternal life. We ask, Father, that as we come to experience him and know him and grow in him, either for the first time or the 500th time, that you would bring yourself honor and glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.